Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Iraqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. It has now been a year since Iraqis voted in the early parliamentary elections on October 10, 2021. On that day, I spoke with Lahib Hajil, senior Iraq analyst at the International Crisis Group, and Omar al-Nidawi, Iraq analyst and program manager at Enabling Peace in Iraq Center, about the elections and what they mean for Iraq and Iraqis. A lot has happened in the last 12 months. I am happy to have them back on the podcast to get a sense of where we are on the one-year anniversary and where we are going. Welcome back, Lahib and Omar. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back again. Thanks for having us again. When we last spoke, there was some hope that Iraq might have had its most technically sound elections and that there was a chance we could see a stronger government emerge with a clear mandate to govern and bring about much needed reforms. Lahib, can you please explain how the situation has unraveled over the past 12 months? Sure. Um, well, let's say, first of all, that there is uh, before and after the withdrawal of the Sudrist MPs in June this year. And I will explain why this is a pivotal moment. So uh, when the election results were announced, it was quite clear that uh, Sadr had made a landslide win with uh, 73 seats in parliament. Um he and his partners, let's say, had also made quite a good election result. That includes the largest Kurdish, Kurdish party, the KDP, and uh, the current parliament speaker, uh, Mohammed al-Halbousi. So Sadr coming out victorious uh, of the elections uh, saw the opportunity to form a so-called majority government with the intention of excluding uh, some of his Shia counterparts, which is really breaking with the tradition that we've had in Iraq of consensus governments where essentially all uh, political elites joined the government. Now, Sadr, I think, uh, did this in quite a provocative way. Uh, his initial speech right after elections uh, made quite clear what some of his policies would aim to do with the next government, including, for instance, reforming, if not dismantling the, the Hashid institution, even though he didn't put it in those words, um, the Hashid institution being the one that, let's say, protects his main rivals, not just politically, uh, but militarily. Um, and then his other intention was to exclude his arch enemy, let's say, the former prime minister, Nouri al-Maliki. Now, of course, for, for the other side that uh, organized themselves into the so-called Shia coordination framework, this attempt by Sadr was unacceptable. Um, and they based their reasoning on, on several points. But I think the main one is that the whole point with the post-2003 political system was to ensure that the ethno-sectarian communities would be fairly represented according to their demographic weight, meaning that the Shia should be in majority. And if Sadr was to 
enter a government together with the KDP and the Sunni Sovereignty Alliance, he would actually put the Shia community in a minority. And so they then went ahead to form uh, what later became the blocking third. But I would say that the framework parties used several um, tactics or tools to put pressure and and stop the formation of this majority government. One of them was to pressure uh, Sadr's partners. So we saw attacks on Erbil, uh, by the so-called resistance groups. Uh, we saw attacks on, on Halbusi's residence in, uh, in Ambar. There were also attempts at, at, at stopping some of the, or discrediting um, Sadr's partners in various ways. One of them was uh, accusing both the KDP and, and Halbusi of, of supporting normalization with Israel, for instance. And hence we saw uh, a parliamentary session uh, that criminalizes normalization with Israel, that Sadr uh, sort of took the lead on in, in order to disqualify these type of accusations. But then I would say that the main hit came in February. So after Mohammed al-Halbusi had passed as, uh, or was re-elected as parliament speaker, uh, the Federal Supreme Court issued a ruling or cl- clarification on the two-third quorum rule, uh, to elect president, which essentially made it impossible for uh, the Sudras together with their partners to form a quorum that could elect president and the president is crucial because the president nominates the prime minister. Now, Sudr and his partners obviously made a few mistakes. Uh, one of them was to uh, not secure an agreement among the Kurds on the presidency. Sadr seemed to believe um, that the KDP could simply deliver the PUK or that the Kurds would would, uh, come to an agreement among themselves, while the PUK very clearly aligned with the framework parties. And the other thing was that Sadr seemed to also be late to uh, try to convince some of his counterparts within the framework to join him instead. And so although we saw indications of, for instance, Hadi al-Amri being willing to jump boats, uh, it was too little too late. Uh, and I think also Iran pushed to try to hold the Shia house together to the extent that they could. Obviously, Sadr had, let's say, already left it, but to make sure that the framework would 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 stay cohesive. And so... Sadr gave the framework uh, on two occasions, I I believe, the opportunity to form a government. So we challenged them. You go ahead and form a government within 40 days. This was uh, over sort of the early summer and and Ramadan. None of it materialized. He made sure to to pass the so-called food security bill that would ensure that some uh, sort of state revenues would still be expensed out uh, to to the average Iraqi through the patronage networks. And then he decided to withdraw his MP, seeing that he wouldn't be able to to follow through on his project. Uh, now, at this point, uh, the table completely turned. Um, Sadr de- didn't seem to understand what the political weight in parliament means or what sort of influence you wield um, by by holding the largest amount of, uh, of seats in parliament. And so... Uh, he he kind of served uh, the framework uh, a golden platter in a sense, and and since then 
the framework parties have been very adamant, and I would say specifically uh, Maliki and a few others, at forming a government irrespective of whether Sadr wants to come along or not. Now, I assume that what Sadr intended to do by withdrawing his MPs was to, again, uh, entice his uh, counterparts uh, in the Shia house to come back to negotiating with him. Instead, they decided to replace his MPs. Uh, they also decided to nominate uh, a prime minister candidate that, that is seen to be close uh, to, to Maliki, that Sadr for sure would reject, and he, and he did so. Uh, and realizing that he had lost the upper hand, he staged protests. Now, as we saw at the end of August, these uh, protests became very serious in the sense that Sadr decided to expand them inside the green zone from what was initially an occupation of parliament, demonstrations outside the federal Supreme Court, to uh, occupying other state institutions. So on the 29th of August, uh, Sadr's protesters started to march towards the, the governmental palace. They entered it, uh, and there seemed to be a worry among, uh, let's say, the other side, and especially within the Hashid, that Sadr actually attempted to take over the Green Zone. And so what we saw was clashes erupting between Sadr's militia, Saraya Salam, and uh, a few factions within the Hashid um, inside the Green Zone. The clashes left dozens of dead, hundreds injured. Um, and for some 24 hours, there was a serious concern that, that Iraq was really uh, sliding into to civil strife. With, I think, some uh, interventions, especially from, from the Marja'iya and Grand Ayatollah Sistani, Sadr decided uh, to instruct his followers to leave the Green Zone. They did so on the 30th of August. Sadr apologized uh, to the Iraqi people for what happened, but he really didn't change anything else in terms of his demands uh, on his counterparts in order to come back into the political process. So his demands were dissolving parliament, holding early elections, continuing with the caretaker government. The framework parties on their side have said that uh, there will be no continuation of the caretaker government until early elections. We will have to have a new government elected. And since that date, they have tried to uh, get especially the Kurdish parties to agree on a president in order to go ahead. Now, we're still at a, at a gridlock. Um, the Kurdish parties have still not uh, settled an understanding between them on the president. And it seems like we can have another few weeks, if not even another few months, uh, until we will have a government. And I think what is happening right now is that Sadr is staying fairly low, uh, waiting or hoping that the framework parties are, are going to fail, uh, in terms of getting the, the Kurds to agree, uh, and thereby forcing some sort of concessions again that will be more on his terms. That's a brilliant summary of the last 12 months and confirms that there's, uh, never a dull moment in Iraqi politics, is there? Unfortunately not. Well, very unfortunate for the Iraqis, at least. 
I agree completely. Uh, Omar, there's been a lot said about the federal Supreme Court and its rulings, both in terms of content, but also timing. Lahib uh, mentioned a little bit about uh, the uh, federal Supreme Court rulings this year. What do you make of this development? And do you see it as positive that matters are being settled in court with lawyers rather than on the street with armed fighters? Uh, that's a great question. I think many Iraq observers have noticed that uh, the federal Supreme Court in Iraq has become more of an activist court that's trying to look for cases and is welcoming a lot of questions and you know inquiries into matters that have continued for many years undisturbed. So there is, I think it's, there's no secret that many in Iraq uh, and outside who are looking at, uh, at Iraq, who think that this new newfound activism within the, the federal Supreme Court is a product of or a manifestation of political ambition and of a uh, an alignment of political interests between actors within the uh, federal Supreme Court or the you know the Supreme Judicial Council of Iraq and its president and certain. Uh, factions within the coordination framework, Nur al-Maliki, and so forth. Um, you know, we're not uh, going to try and and, and de decide whether these uh, you know c uh, suspicions are true or, or founded or not. But that's definitely the perception of um, you know why the court has been acting this way. You know, like for example, why has the court now decided to rule into uh, to issue a verdict on um, the KRG, the legality of the KRG oil sector and its oil legislation, when this is a a dispute that has been going on since, you know, definitely since the foundation, since the ratification of Iraq's constitution, since the uh, Iraqi parties were trying to draft and pass an oil law, and more so since 2009 when the KRG started signing oil contracts. So the timing of these verdicts, whether it's the uh, the two-third rule, or the uh, uh, or the KRG oil sector, raises you know these suspicions or perceptions of that the that there is political dimension, there there's political ambition uh, and interest be uh, behind these um, you know decisions and rulings. Now, is it better that the dispute is being settled in? courts and by lawyers or and then between fighters on the streets, I think it's not really, there's no clear answer because if we look at the aftermath of some of these decisions, uh, we see a, uh, that in some cases they have contributed to violence. Um, you know, the, the, the violent episode that we saw in, on August 29 in, in Baghdad, that was not far removed from the court's decision to affirm the two-third uh, quorum requirement for electing a president, correct? So I think in a way, uh, these decisions, um, and we're not debating their legality at this point, I think it's a, you know, that's a whole new new issue, but uh, their impact can contribute to the um, to the escalation that we're finding on the street, because, because when Sadafi is frustrated, cornered, unable to uh, when he found himself unable to pursue his political ambition, uh, to pursue his, um, you know, drive for a 
for dominance in a in a in his vision uh, of majority government, he had to basically vent his anger uh, through the streets or his to let his uh, followers vent their anger through the streets. So that's I think that was a case of of immediate violent uh, reactions related that are connected to 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 the rulings. Um, one could also make an argument that even uh, when there is no immediate violent reaction. Uh, these rulings can contribute to long-term instability in a way. Um, and, you know, I think these issues, these constitutional questions that are being settled by the court in one way or another um, are some examples of what people refer to as, you know, the time bombs that live in Iraq's constitution. That it, These are issues that go unnoticed and undisputed so long as, as there is consensus and that everyone is... A, is in agreement on how they should proceed. But the moment this consensus begins to erode, they rise to the surface and become problematic. Um, you know, if we look back at, you know, one of the most infamous cases of, of courts intervention in, in politics, and again, we're not discussing the legality, but the, um, you know, the, the political situation that surrounded it. If we go back to that case in 2010, when the federal Supreme Court uh, reinterpreted the the definition of of the largest bloc in Iraq's parliament, and uh, that basically gave Nur al-Maliki the chance to uh, retain, uh, you know, his his role as prime minister for a second term. Um, you know, one, one could argue that that decision, in a way, contributed to long-term instability and violence because that second term of, of Nur al-Maliki put Iraq on that path that culminated in disaster in 2014. And we're continuing to, to live the, the, the fallout of, of, that, uh, of that situation. So these rulings are generally, if we want to like sum it up really, are, are the product of an imperfect constitution that has uh, proven uh, divisive um, and to some extent ineffective. And I think more importantly, a document that is being employed selectively by the powerful political elites as their uh, interests demand, as their interests, uh, you know, have dictated. That's, that's, I think, is the problem. This conclusion that you've come to is one that um, uh, a lot of us have, uh, have come to as well. Uh, recently, I was speaking to, to Lahib about this. Lahib, what are the chances given the political fractures and the differences that we would be able to get some sort of constitutional amendments in order to to rectify some of these problems that uh, Omar brought up? Well, I think with the current uh, political tensions, it is very difficult to see that the political elite would engage in a constitutional review that would lead to any constitutional amendment. But at the end of the day, it is clearly needed um, if we are to ensure that we don't end up in a similar situation again. Iraq right now can go on for some time without a government, um, obviously. Uh, there is money that is uh, still being expensed. There are, of course, uh, people that 
that cannot benefit the way they used to, and especially the political parties cannot. Um, and so therefore they are uh, feeling the sense of urgency to, to form a government in order to be able to sort of sustain and and expand their, their patronage networks, which is the whole point of being in government. Um, but I, I would hope that by the time that a government is formed and it appears that it will be conditioned on early elections being held within, let's say, two years or so, that beyond that process, if we, if we look to early elections as a sort of political reset to the current gridlock, then the question is, Okay, but then what? We know that the average Iraqi is extremely disillusioned with the current political system. Um, the political establishment faced a huge crisis with the 2019 and 2020 uh, Tishreen protests. The demographic pressure speaks for itself in the sense that those grievances are not going anywhere. Um, and that Iraq cannot continue to expand government payroll forever. It will have a backlash and that will come whenever oil prices decrease again. And, and those cycles would reemerge, even if we can, you know, sustain, uh, the current, uh, expense level that the state has for, for another few years. So all the ingredients for a major meltdown are there. And I think that there are, parts of the political establishment that realize this, but they are not the ones that will take the initiative to lead uh, on a constitutional review and eventual constitutional amendments. I think that that is where the international community needs to come in and support uh, or incentivize Iraq's political actors to actually go through the pains of doing this. And I, I would hope that if and when we have a government and they make the request uh, to New York or to the UN to support new elections, that the international community will also set some other conditions. We've seen that the fact that it's taken one year and we still don't have a government has also made... Uh, especially Western countries that, that invested a lot to, to ensure that this was the most transparent election that we've had so far, are quite annoyed by the fact that the political actors are now proving themselves incapable of, of forming a government. So um, I hope that at that point, you know, the support to another election will also be coupled with conditions that, that open up some of these very pressing and what will be very painful negotiations for the Iraqi political elites to amend the constitution in a way that we have a political system that is actually fit for purpose. Uh, and that doesn't only include the mechanisms uh, for for government formation, although they are critical. Uh, Omar mentioned some of these steps. I mean, it's not just the two-third quorum rule. It's a question of the of the largest bloc uh, in parliament. But we also need to go beyond that. Um, uh, the uh, Actually, formulating a law on oil and gas, not just year by year having negotiations where there is an understanding between Erbil and Baghdad uh, on how to deal with the budget. Unless we have a sustainable oil and gas law, we're going to have the tensions between Erbil and Baghdad continue 
well into the future. It also includes questions about the about the disputed territories. Now, all of that cannot be addressed at the same time, but there are a few things that the political elite can start with and that I think that the international community with UNAMI acting as a main convener, facilitator, mediator can actually set a roadmap uh, to help uh, Iraq's political elites through this, but also hopefully involving uh, civil society actors, new parties, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to bring in some legitimacy that that we really lack in the system right now, considering that no new parties have had uh, any ability to make themselves heard in this current political gridlock that is only played out at the elite level and specifically between uh, very powerful personalities within Iraqi politics. I want to go back to these very powerful personalities, Omar. On August 29th, we saw what a worst-case scenario could look like when Iraqi politics reaches its limits. What lessons did we learn from that 16 to 20 hours of violence in the heart of Baghdad? Um, I think the, unfortunately, the uh, biggest lesson that uh, we learned from that episode was that peace and normalcy in Baghdad and the rest of Iraq are very fragile and take a lot of effort to preserve and protect and can be lost, you know, fairly uh, in the blinking of an eye. Uh, so, um, we should not take those for granted. Um, I think the fighting between the Sadrits and the um, uh, elements of the Hashid at the time, uh, who are aligned with the co uh, coordination framework, gave us a glimpse of what infighting would look like. And, uh, you know, I'm putting on my security analyst hat. Uh, I, I think it what we saw uh, points to a picture or a a, a potential scenario in which fighting would be inconclusive and uh, there would be no quick victors in, a, in an open armed conflict between a militia like Sadr and rivals like you know, Qatar, Hezbollah, and Asab, Ahl-Haq. Uh, they both have the, uh, you know, all of these factions have the ability to do a lot of harm, to do a lot of damage, but the nature of the of the warring factions and the nature of the battlefield, um, unfortunately, uh, to call back that that, uh, does not lend itself, not, none of these elements lend themselves to a, a quick conclusion of fighting and the emergence of victory. So if, God forbid, the situation goes that direction again, um, one could uh, or should brace for a prolonged, protracted situation. Now, I think another important lesson to learn from um, that could be drawn from that situation, from that escalation, is that uh, despite the, the apologetic statement and uh, demeanor that, that Muqtada al-Sadr showed the next day, the fighting that took place over the previous 16 hours or how many hours there were showed that Sadr was really willing to play brinkmanship with the use of force to achieve his political objectives. Uh, he could have intervened sooner to stop the violence, but he didn't. He could have issued that statement 
at 10 p.m. instead of waiting until you know midday the next day. He did not do that, and I think that was not a um, not an accident. Uh, it was, I think, it was a deliberate decision. He wanted to see if they could actually take the international zone. I think he wanted to see what what, what unfolds, and he wanted to test his opponents, uh, and he wanted to show them that you know the uh, a little bit of the what he could do, what his fighters could do. He wanted the message to be received uh, loud and clear before he did anything. Um, I, I see no other logical explanation for, for waiting that long. Um, the interesting thing is that the fighting, the way the Sauterists deployed themselves and threw themselves into the fight showed, and the way that they also responded to Sadr uh, Sutter's message when he recalled them demonstrated that there's a lot of loyalty to Sutter. They will listen to him when he says stop, they stop. Uh, but there was not much thought or purpose in the way they were fighting. Yeah, if we look going back to how they how the fighting unfolded around Baghdad, what buildings they were targeted that were targeted and what objectives the soldiers may have had at the time, there didn't seem to be any clear idea for what they were trying, what tactical objectives they were trying to achieve. So I think that's uh, another, you know, element of that, um, you know, analysis that points to a, to the potential for inconclusive fighting should this uh, happen again in, in the future. Um, Unfortunately, there was also a very sad demonstration of the of poor leadership um, and lack of initiative and lack of will by the leadership of the of the Iraqi security forces to take action. I mean, the government government forces, for the most part, were um, you know absent from the from the picture as the fighting engulfed Baghdad, and that is a very um, you know, I, I think that was a very sad demonstration of uh, of the state, deteriorated state of of Iraq's security forces as a protector of the nation's capital. And I'm not talking about the you know the men, the soldiers, the the men or women in service, uh, but really of the of the of the political command uh, that was you know that that's in charge. Uh, that that was very unfortunate. And we we know who uh, we know who the buck stops with there, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think the uh, w- when you see the the top commanders, the commander in chief, taking a bystanders approach to events of this magnitude in the capital of the country, um, that is really the uh, the worst message you can send to your countrymen, to the to your people, to the outside world. I couldn't agree more. Lahib, you were very generous in your brilliant summary of the last 12 months. I want you to take out your crystal ball, and I want you to rate Mohammed Shia Sudani's chances of forming a government, and tell us if you envisage any scenario where Muqtada Sadr would be willing to return to the political process. I don't know if the crystal ball even exists uh, in Iraqi politics, but... I will give it a try. I mean, look, I, I what I see happening right now is really uh, this game where Maliki and Sadr are staring at each other. 
and they're waiting for the other one to blink first. Um, the silence of Sadr right now, the, the lack of willingness or, or refusal, really, to sit down and talk with his counterparts, obviously comes out of the fact that he's done some critical mistakes uh, and he's left with very little uh, to push them back from, from dominating a government uh, unless he uses force. And we also saw that that did not work. Um, but I think on the, on the other side, we also have an unrealistic uh, set of maximalist demands that are mainly represented by Maliki. Um, and that includes uh, the nomination of Muhammad Shia Sudani. But it makes sense to, to stick with him for now, because obviously if they start to backtrack, and, and really, I think within the framework, it is not a question of whether it has to be Sudani or not. They can negotiate on that. But what they don't want to do is to show Sadr that they will concede first. Um, so, of course, we could have a scenario in which uh, Sudani is actually nominated. If we consider uh, what happened today, we had yet another delegation uh, led by Halbusi this time, the parliament speaker, going to Erbil, trying to get Mas'ud Barzani on board, agreeing on uh, a PUK president, even if it's not Barham Saleh. Mas'ud Barzani appears to be playing the same game, which is that, no, I will stick by my uh, candidate, which is Rebar Ahmed, and you come back to me when, you know, when you have negotiated some, something else with, uh, with the PUK, or give me a better deal. Um, so the framework could absolutely go to a session, potentially get two-third quorum to elect, to re-elect them probably, Barham Saleh, as the president if the KDP refuses to show up. But then the framework will stand there with a government that is essentially not endorsed by Sadr and not by the KDP. And I think that the scenario is extremely risky. Uh, and I think that most framework parties reason in a way where they would say, okay, we can live with one of them excluded from government, but not both of them. Why? Because both Sadr and Barzani command uh, significant power in, in simply through their constituents, right? Um, so I think that the framework will then put themselves in a situation will, where they will come under attack in, in various ways or uh, attempts at sabotaging uh, their politics, just like the framework did when Sadr and his partners had the upper hand. So I think that right now the question is more one of which side within the framework is going to win. The one that is more risk averse and that will seek uh, a larger consensus, or the one uh, that is more risk-taking, being Maliki uh, and and a few others. But I think that government will be very unstable. And unless they manage to, let's say, give Sadr and the KDP something 
behind closed doors. So, so getting in them into to government indirectly, right? And I mean, this is this would be no surprise that, for instance, Sadr would essentially have uh, six ministers, for instance, that are. Um, in quotation marks, independent slash technocratic, but essentially he he controls them. Uh, but so far, it doesn't seem like uh, like Sadr has has given in to these uh, types of options. And so, what I think is that still both options are are open. Uh, we might see the framework actually backtracking. Uh, on Sudani if, if this goes too far. Uh, but yes, there is also a possibility that Sudani will be the next prime minister, but in that case, uh, quite a fragile government. Omar, if you can do the same thing with your crystal ball and tell me on the anniversary of Tishreen um, on the 1st of October, it was marked by protests in Baghdad and some of the southern provinces, but overall these protests didn't draw the sort of crowds that we witnessed three years ago. What do you think will happen with the Tishreen movement over the coming weeks and months? Great question. But first of all, I want to make uh, just one uh, comment on the, uh, on the earlier question of, you know, Sadr's participation in the, in the, um, in the next government. And uh, to me, I think like, I think the, I would flip the question and ask, do we see a scenario in which Sadr is not part of the political process? And to me, that would be the anomaly. Um, I think as hostile and unusual the political situation looks right now, uh, the system still has a lot of resilience. And by the system, I mean, you know, the, the Mohasasa, I mean, the, the entrenched interests that eventually drive everyone back to the to the negotiating table to get a government going so that ministries can be formed so that contracts can be awarded a budget can can be passed rent can be collected and everyone can maintain their oiled well-oiled political machine um I don't see Sadr coming out completely abandoning the political process. Yes, he has his demons. He wants this. He has this lust for dominance and for absolute power as the sole representative of the Iraqi Shia community. But I think he is being more and more isolated. He is. He has lost. You know some of his. Uh, key allies who are now working towards forming a government despite his objections. And I think there will also be more and more pressure being applied on Sadr from within his establishment to, uh, you know, to accept some sort of a deal. And let's not forget that back in 2010, you know, after Sadr was, you know, literally defeated in a in military battle with uh, by by Nur al-Maliki uh, in uh, Salat al-Fursan, the charge of the Knights, he went to in, into self-imposed exile in, in Iran, uh, but did not completely leave politics. He still, you know, uh, forged a deal begrudgingly to support Maliki and made his re-entry into politics in 2011 or, or 2012. So nothing is, I would not put anything beyond um, Sadr when it comes to securing the, you know, uh, his interests. 
So we'll see. Uh, on the question of, of Tishreen, I think, you know, Crystal Ball is, uh, does not really offer a lot of uh, <laughs> clear images these days. But if we, if we take a step back and, and think of the, uh, the situation in its most elemental forms, we find that the underlying conditions have not changed much, have not improved much. Uh, you know, Tishreen um, was a unique and powerful e expression of, of how Iraqis, especially young Iraqis, feel about the political system, uh, about their uh, political representatives, about the country's economy, and, and, and so forth. But it is not the, uh, it, it is not the entirety of this of this feeling, of this relationship. It is not the encapsulate the entire relationship between uh, Iraqis and the political system. Uh, this, it's a particular episode, and yes, it has suffered loss of momentum. It has suffered loss of, of important members. People gave their lives for this, for this movement, for their goals. Uh, but the anger and the sense of injustice that fueled Tishreen are still there. Um, faces and names can change. I think we can see weeks, months, even years pass before we see the next, you know, explosion of this anger. But I think the overall trajectory of the, of the, you know, the, ov the overall relationship between the people and the political system uh, is not going to become reliably less turbulent unless there is a fundamental change in the, in the players them themselves. I think that's, that's all I can say about this. Lihib, I know you're a very close follower of the Tishreen movement. Would you like to add anything? I agree with uh, with what Omar said. I think that there is right now uh, some soul-searching going on among many of, especially the parties that emerge out of the Tishreen movement, um, those that decided to boycott the elections are trying to forge alliances uh, outside of parliament preparing for the next election. They realize that they cannot go it alone, um, which is a, a very sound approach, I think. But I think that they will face issues in the upcoming elections simply because the constituents that did vote for independence or Tishreen-related parties have not been able to see them deliver anything. And that is not necessarily their fault, right? But the, the political situation, the lack of a government has not made it possible for new parties to distinguish themselves in parliament to, to form an, an opposition, um, to vent new ideas or, or criticize the, the traditional elites for for their policies or, or the legislation that they put forth. So that's one. And the second thing is that most likely we will have a change to the election system. We know that the framework parties want to reverse the system, preferably to, to the old one. Uh, most likely we will end up with some sort of hybrid, I think, that will essentially predetermine the fallout in a way where they ensure that the discrepancy between uh, the Sudrists and themselves is not going to be as big as it was this time around. And if that happens, I think that there was one 
you know, for the Tishrinis, there was one positive outcome of, of the uh, election system of single non-transferable votes, and that is that, that independent candidates uh, uh, benefited from that. And so if you decrease the number uh, of seats uh, that uh, are elected through SNTV, then I think we will see uh, less independents or new parties making it into parliament. Uh, now, of course, Tishreen or Tishreen-related parties are, uh, some of them are organizing politically, but not everyone. And we will still have that part of um, the Tishreen movement that will still consider out of parliamentary or out of political opposition the most effective tool, right? So we might see uh, a kind of Tishreen 2.0 emerging a few years down the line because of Obviously, the current uh, establishment is is not going to improve public services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it will take time to to build that sort of power again. Uh, it's obvious that they've run out of steam. But again, going back to the demographic pressure that I mentioned earlier, I think that the the basic conditions for it are there. It's just a question of what is the next crisis going to be that will ignite that spark again uh you know would it be another water crisis in basra as we saw in 2018 or um you know electricity or or whatever so um i think that there will be the the part of tishreen that make it into politics and they will struggle and then there will be that uh unsatisfied huge blob of young Iraqis that are making it into the labor market every year, but that they, they can't get jobs. And there will always be an ability for uh, for protests to emerge by organizing those types of constituents. It's been a pleasure talking on the one-year anniversary um, of the 2021 elections. I, for one, am keeping my fingers crossed that on the second anniversary We'll be talking about the uh, work of the uh, new government rather than talking about government formation. Omar and Lahib, thank you both very much for joining me today. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care. <laughs>